Thank you to the team again for worship, just uh, leading us into God's presence. Great stuff. Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. I'm going to do something here to uh, open our time of uh, thinking together uh, that I don't often do. I'm going to read a whole chapter of scripture. And and you can follow along in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen. This is uh, from Luke chapter 15. We're going to spend the next few weeks uh, in this chapter reflecting together on the teachings of Jesus. They're really quite remarkable. And um, I hope that God will speak to you as he's been speaking to me. But to get started, uh, let's read the word of God together. This is Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom to understand this teaching of Jesus, not just this morning, but even in the weeks to come. We ask that your Holy Spirit would apply these words to us in ways that reshape our thinking, in ways that teach us just how good you are. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen? Well, you may have noticed the context of Jesus' teaching as we opened reading this passage. The Pharisees are actually challenging him. That's what's going on. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, of course, are the people in Israel who are in positions of power, positions of leadership, culturally, spiritually, and so. And Jesus engages them because they have a profoundly misshapen view of themselves and of God. So much so that Jesus was bound and determined to challenge them. Jesus was not going to let them persist in their practice of religion. Because their religion was just too small. Their religion was too narrow. It made God into someone he wasn't, and it made them into someone they weren't. And so here in Luke 15, in these simple stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the two lost sons, Jesus means to correct their thinking, to challenge their religion, which is exactly what will happen to us, I hope this morning and in weeks to come, as we study these stories that Jesus told. In verses 1 and 2, you see that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. That's interesting. Why did they mutter? What was the muttering about? Well, they were muttering because they struggled to accept Jesus' teaching about right and wrong and God and sin and human nature and religion. They didn't like what Jesus was doing. They didn't like what Jesus was saying. Jesus was teaching sinners and tax collectors for crying out loud. He was even eating with them, the text tells us. And alarmingly, these people, these sinners were flocking to Jesus to hear what he had to say. And this, of course, was troubling these religious leaders. They wanted to know why. Why are these people, people who don't practice good Sabbath traditions, people who don't study and love the Torah, the law, people who don't go to temple, people who don't observe the annual religious festivals not the way they should, people who don't pay the temple tax, people who don't live good moral lives, why are these people coming to hear this rabbi? And even more importantly, why is this rabbi willing to talk to them let alone eat with them. These people do not live righteous lives. They are not good people. You see, these religious leaders believe that Jesus should be condemning these people, giving them a piece of his mind, challenging them, warning them, telling them to change their ways and be good people, people like the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Be like them. 
And so the bottom line, kind of the backdrop of this text that we read, is that the Pharisees see Jesus as a rabbi who's soft on sin. He's just soft on sin. He welcomes people that God would never, ever welcome. He fraternizes with people who God would surely condemn. Jesus is reckless. He's dangerous. He's not a good rabbi. And they wonder why. Why does Jesus do this? And understand, this is the very thing that Jesus had come to confront, this practice of religion. And so Jesus challenges them with these stories, with these parables. He's saying that both sinners and righteous, both immoral and moral, both good people and bad people have a problem relating to God. I don't know if you noticed in verse 11, Jesus doesn't call this story the prodigal son. I mean, that's a title we've given it, but that's, that's not how Jesus introduces that story. Jesus says there was a man who had two sons, two sons. Both sons are very important to the story. A prodigal son, to be sure, but there's also an elder, older brother. And the elder brother in this story has just as big a problem relating to his father as the prodigal son. You see, the rule keeper and the rule breaker are both distant from their father. But ironically, shockingly, here in Jesus' story, the wayward prodigal son who squanders the father's wealth, he comes home. He repents comes back to the father and the father welcomes him and the father loves him the father forgives him and celebrates the return of his son even slaughters the fattened calf for him and of course the pharisees hear this story and they are shocked just like the elder brother was shocked the elder brother comes in from the field right and he hears music and he spies some dancing going on far away at the house and he wonders what in the world's going on And he hears that his wayward brother has come home and his dad has killed the fattened calf and a huge celebration is happening, but the elder brother isn't celebrating. The elder brother is angry. The elder brother refuses to go in and to celebrate. In fact, we read again, it says, uh, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving. That's an interesting choice of words, by the way. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed, again, an interesting word, your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And then the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And I want you to see, I hope you get what Jesus is saying here to the Pharisees. It's very convicting. It's very challenging. See, at the end of this story, it's the elder brother, the rule keeper, the religious one who's angry and who's alienated. And we're left scratching our heads and wondering, what's he going to do? The jury is still out. We don't actually know what he does. With the elder brother, you know, will he be reconciled to the father the way his prodigal brother is in the story? You see, that's what makes this story so shocking, one that directly challenges challenges the, the religion of the Pharisees. 
Jesus is actually saying in these stories that good people and bad people are lost. And not only that, he says the elder brother is not lost despite his goodness. He's lost because of his goodness. And Jesus is challenging the Pharisees and us by saying that the goodness of the elder brother is more of a barrier between him and the father than even his badness. Gulp. Do you see that Jesus is directly challenging the religion of the Pharisees? And I I might add, he's actually challenging all human religion here. Because the prevailing wisdom, you see, of the Pharisees, and frankly of all human religion, is that God, if there is a God, wants good people. You know, God welcomes good people. Good people will be rewarded by God. Good people will go to heaven. God will be pleased with good people. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. You you don't have this correctly. You, You don't understand the reckless nature of the love of God. And that's true, they didn't. Because they thought that God's love was something you earned. God's love was something that you you achieved by the way that you lived and the way that you repented. Secondly, Jesus says to them, you don't understand the depth of your own personal depravity, your own personal brokenness. You see, both good people and bad people are equally lost and at odds with the Father, the Heavenly Father. Now, interestingly, it's often bad people when they hear Jesus talk about things like God and like sin and like brokenness and things like rescue and things like salvation. They are in less denial. Bad people are. They understand more quickly just the nature of their need for someone to rescue them, someone to save them. And Jesus is pointing out that, if anything, it's the good people that are most in denial of their need. They are the most alienated from the Father, if you will. You know, religion says that the way you are rescued, the way you are saved, the way that you, to make your life work is to repent of your sin and then do better, right? Then God, if there is a God, will accept you and all will be well. Now, of course, the Pharisees did this all the time. The Pharisees were professional repenters. Sometimes they liked to do it on the street corners for people to observe just how good of a repenter they really were. The Pharisees didn't deny that they were sinners, not for a second. They just didn't sin very well. You know, they were mostly good. And so they knew that when they sinned, they needed to tell God, hey, I'm sorry, but I'll do better. And they felt especially good about their repentance. But Jesus says, you see, it's not just your sin that you need to repent of. You need to repent of your good works as well. Because you think that your good works or your righteous acts give you some kind of acceptance, some kind of merit with God. You know, the prophet Isaiah, once reflecting on this very thing, said, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. They're, they're all tainted, even the good things we do. There's selfishness, self-centeredness, pride. There's all kinds of things mixed in with the good acts, the righteous acts that we do. Jesus is saying that tax collectors and prostitutes and addicts and junkies and the morally broken and the bankrupt often get God easier and faster than the religious moral middle do. 
because they live with no illusion of having something to bring to God so that he would accept them. It's a huge point. It's a huge problem for us. You know, Tim Keller talks about a teacher he had one time, a Dr. John Gerstner, who was a systematics professor at Pittsburgh Seminary many, many years ago. He's deceased now. But Tim Keller says that when uh, he would begin teaching this systematics class and he would have a room full of seminary students sitting there, you know, all these good young men and women who were just excited about Torah, law, theology, learning, etc. And he would say to them, you need to know that the main barrier between you and God is not so much your sins. It's your damnable good works. Interesting. But I think true. You see, that really is the gospel, friends. That really is Jesus' good news. Namely, that it's only the reckless love of God that rescues us. Only his grace. It's only his mercy. It's only his goodness. Not our goodness. Not our obedience. Not our religious activity. Not our repentance, you see. Jesus' gospel, when it's properly understood, is is anti-religious. It's radical, radical stuff. And you can see why Christianity, when rightly understood, is never, ever popular with religious people. Religious people will always oppose it. They don't want to hear that it's not only your religious failures that keep you from God, your disobedience, it's also your religious successes. It's your damnable good works, in other words. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying. And friends, we have to be so careful in churches, in our church, because the moment we think that our religious good works are the slightest bit impressive, the moment we think that we are just a little bit better than someone over there or than someone out there, we're acting like and being exactly like the elder brother. When churches do this too, they become very religious, religious organizations. And religion has a certain stench to it. There are certain identifying features of religion. For example, in religion, people become very judgmental. You know, judgmental of what others do or don't do. Judgmental of what others believe or don't believe. In religion, you want to separate from those who are different than you. Uh, you know, I'm not going to eat with those sinners is kind of the mindset of religion. In religion, you help only those that you think deserve your help. Certainly not a prodigal son. I mean, he got what he deserved, right? And in religion, we tend to think that if there's a God, well, he's pretty fortunate to have us on his team. He's pretty blessed, right, that we're working with his agenda. Friends, when we get Jesus' message, when his good news takes root in our heart, the reckless love of God shatters all of those human religious ideas. Now, you may not know this or have thought about it, but understand all people are religious. Regardless of what God you believe in, whether it's the many gods of the Mormons or the one God of Allah or Buddhism's path to enlightenment or Hinduism's self-absorption in the divine, even if you don't believe in any God at all, even if you're an atheist, doesn't matter. You are still a religious creature because you're made that way. There's nothing you can do about being religious. And understand, religion is essentially moralism. 
That's what religion is. And only Jesus' gospel can deliver us from religion and moralism. Let me explain. You see, regardless whether you are a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican, regardless whether you are gay and lesbian activists or a traditional pro-family proponent, Regardless whether you are a pro-life advocate or a pro-abortion advocate, regardless whether you're a pro-gun supporter or a gun law supporter, regardless whether you uh, use and abuse cannabis or don't and think it should go away, regardless, doesn't matter, you would agree with me that all of those groups have a pretty different set of values, yes? Yeah? But here's the thing. They all also have the same religious moralism. Every one of those groups, all of these groups essentially say the following. They say, you know, there are good people and there are bad people in the world. And the problems in the world are there because of the bad people. And if only more people in the world lived the way I live and believed the things that I believe and acted the way that I act, this world would be a better place. Now understand, even the prodigal son thought that. The prodigal son looked at his father, looked at the situation, looked at the money and said, I want my inheritance. I'm going to get out of here. You guys are too uptight. Uh, You you guys have too many rules. If you would just chill, if you would just be a little more like me, if you just lighten up, life would be so much better for everybody. So give me my inheritance. You see, even the immoral prodigal son practiced religion, practiced moralism. That's moralism. And all of these groups, regardless of which group you happen to be in, we all think this way. Liberals and conservatives, people inside churches and people outside churches, gay people, straight people, gun lovers, gun haters, prodigal sons and elder brothers, all people think this way. It's our default setting. This runs so deep in fallen human beings, it's very hard for us to, to even hear what Jesus is saying when Jesus teaches the radical gospel that he teaches. We want to say to Jesus, what do you mean, Jesus? My goodness, the things I believe, the way I act, the causes I support, the activities that I condemn, all the things that make me who I am, all the things that make me good, those very things can get in the way of my relating to the Heavenly Father? I don't think so. That's preposterous, Jesus. But is it? How do you account for the fact that whenever the real message of Jesus has been understood and proclaimed very clearly, more often than not, it's the outsiders. It's the people who normally run away from churches or synagogues or from God or from the Bible who come in. It's, it's, uh, it was why... Uh, It was why these peoples, these crowds, these outsiders flocked to Jesus the way they did. Uh, They were always wanting to get close to him, always wanting to hear what he had to say and always listening. And it made no sense whatsoever to the Pharisees who were observing this phenomenon. They wondered why are sinners so interested in this rabbi? And yet good moral religious people, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, elder brothers, for the most part, they did not throng to Jesus. They were confused by Jesus. And this is a little troubling. Now, here's an even more embarrassing observation. You know, do outcasts, uh, do sinners and tax collectors, do they throng to our church? 
You know, the Pharisees were asking themselves, why do these sinners and tax collectors flock to this rabbi? Why do they flock to Jesus? Why do they not come to our gatherings? And here's the deal. Maybe if these kinds of people don't come to our gatherings, maybe we're not preaching and living Jesus' gospel clearly enough. I mean, if our church is filled with just good moral people, maybe somehow, whether we know it or not or mean to or not, we are living and preaching human religion. You know, do good and God will accept you. Worse, uh, if you're good, you're welcome here. You know, I'm struck by the fact that when Jesus taught about his kingdom and when he taught about his heavenly father, people who came to him most often were the religiously disenfranchised. In other words, the people who really hadn't been able to make the religion thing work. Uh, These are people who couldn't seem to improve themselves enough to be accepted in the synagogue or at temple or in certain social contexts. They they didn't feel worthy of God because they couldn't quite cut it the way those religious people were. But boy, when they heard Jesus, when they listened to this rabbi teach, it was different. His message was different. And so we we have to ask ourselves, well, what was Jesus' message? And what I want to do in the weeks to come is I want to spend time diving into just what the gospel really is, just what made Jesus' message so different. But this morning I want to talk about two very foundational aspects of that message, something, you could call them two pillars if you would, but um, things that we see right here in these stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin, the two lost sons. And if you get these two things... I would contend that your life would never, ever be the same if you build your your practice of being a disciple of Jesus on these two pillars. Your life will never be the same. And here's the first thing. The first thing is this. Jesus argues that sin is much more pervasive than we imagine. He says that sin is much more than just breaking a rule. You know, when uh, human beings construct religions, we always have a set of things you should do and shouldn't do. And so sin for us becomes rule-breaking, you see. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Sin runs much more deeply in human beings than just what things they do or don't do, what rules they keep, what rules they break. He says sin, in essence, is really running from relationship with the Father. That's what sin really is. It's running from God. Notice the lost sheep runs from the shepherd. It's not just out on a stroll somewhere. It has actually left the flock. It's running from the shepherd. It's decided it doesn't need the shepherd. Notice, too, that the prodigal son says, hey, I want my wealth, Dad. You see, he already, here's what's interesting, he already had wealth. When he was living with the father, he lacked nothing, to be sure. But what he really wanted was his wealth without the father, without relationship, you see. And human religions teach us essentially that sin is breaking some kind of rule, doing something we shouldn't or not doing something we should. And Jesus says, no, the essence of sin is running from relationship with the Father. It's interesting, Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. It's talking about sin. It says each of us has turned to his own way. You see, we've gone out and decided for ourselves what we will or will not do. We're not going to listen to the Father as he would guide us. We're not going to have a relationship with him. Jesus says the essence of sin is wanting to get away from the Father. 
It's wanting to be free of the Father. It's wanting to be our own Lord and Master and have no accountability, no relationship with the Father. And of course, there are different ways to be free of the Father. Breaking rules is one way, but so is keeping rules. If the rules help you keep the Father at a distance, Flannery O'Connor's first book, first book he ever wrote was called Wise Blood, and in it there's a character called Hazel Motes, and Hazel has come back from the war, World War II, and he had a grandfather who was a, an evangelist, a preacher, and something about that relationship with his grandfather really poisoned him, and, and he wanted nothing to do with religion, and yet some aspect of the gospel, some aspect of the teaching about Jesus had gotten into his brain, and, and so he processed much of his life from the perspective of whether or not he was practicing the faith of his grandfather, and uh, Flannery O'Connor describes Hazel Motes this way. He says, there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Isn't that interesting? If I can just avoid sin, you see, I don't have much of a need for Jesus. When the prodigal son runs from his father, he says, in essence, I hate you. I wish you were dead. I just want your wealth. I'm out of here. I am leaving. When the elder brother runs from the father, he doesn't say anything. Not even to himself. Even though there's all kinds of resentment and anger churning and burning inside him. The elder brother stays home and does what he needs to do. He keeps the rules. He slaves. He obeys the orders, so he said. And he's resenting the father. In fact, he's feeling that his father owes him, you see. And the point is, you can escape the father... You can avoid the father through morality and religion. That's the elder brother. That's the Pharisees. Or you can avoid him through immorality and irreligion. That's the prodigal son. Either way, you avoid having to relate to the father. And essentially, every culture, every civilization, every human being since the fall does everything he or she can to live free of the father. It's what sin does to us. That's essentially what sin is, Jesus says. That's what destroys us when we disconnect ourselves from the Father who loves us. And we say, you know what? I'll decide for myself what I do with my time. I'll decide for myself how I manage my money. I'll decide for myself how to navigate relationships. I don't need you, Father. So you see, people either construct their own religions. That's the elder brother. That's the Pharisees. They've got their own gods, their own morals, their own sets of do's and don'ts, and they achieve their own righteousness. Or they deny religion altogether and they pursue immorality. That's the prodigal brother. Either way, they are running from their father. And so Jesus' first point is just that sin at its very, very heart is running from the father. Are you with me so far? Okay. Second point, and this is huge. It has to do with the value of human beings. Jesus says that human beings are treasured more than we can imagine by the Heavenly Father. And that's the point of these three parables, these three stories. It's that simple. You matter. You see, Jesus is, of course, the shepherd. He's the woman. He's the father to the prodigal and the elder brother. And in each case, Jesus is searching for what is lost. 
He leaves the 99 and he searches for the one lost sheep. The woman searches for the one lost coin. The father searches the horizon constantly in hopes that his prodigal son will come home. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm the Lord of the universe. I created and I sustained it all. And yet I love these creatures, all of them, that are lost. So much so I go searching for them. So much so I die for them. So much so I endure the cross for them. You see, that, friends, is reckless love. That's amazing. And that is the best news you're ever going to hear, ever. You know, on Christmas Eve, I read a quote from Bertrand Russell. He's a a British philosopher. He's long deceased, but he was a brilliant thinker. And uh, in all of his brilliance and in all of his thinking, it led him to some pretty despairing places. Um, he determined that life and the cosmos uh, it was essentially purposeless. You really could find, not in science, not in religion, not anywhere, any purpose, any meaning for life. Um, he wrote these words. He said, man's growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. Just random distribution of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. In other words, no no life after death. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, that's all the great painting, all the great literature, all the great thoughts of human beings are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So there can be no right or wrong. There can be no truth versus falsehood. There can be no good versus evil. There can be no heroism versus selfishness. There's no life after death. There's obviously and certainly no God. And there is obviously and certainly no purpose, not to any of it. The only thing we know for sure is that stuff exists. There is matter. It's a material view of life, material reality. And so understand, everything you do and everything you are is utterly insignificant. You are just a hunk of junk, a hunk of matter. You are no more important. You matter no more than a rock. You have no intrinsic value whatsoever. Friends, understand there is no scientific reason whatsoever to believe anything other than that. I think Bertrand Russell is right. Given his presuppositions, given where he starts, I I think he's right. And so the great problem today of ethics and science and philosophy and academia, the great problem is to demonstrate somehow, some way that human beings matter. But here's the real tension. You see, every single human being does deeply believe that they matter. We all do. We just can't give a good reason why. You know, this past Friday, there was a huge funeral, as you know, for Officer Parrish who lost his life 
in an ambush. And I think 10,000 or more people participated in that, that parade and, and the memorial services that followed. <laughs> what a waste of time. He doesn't matter. And even as I say that, some part of you has to react and think, whoa, that's so wrong. See, because we do know that he does matter. We know that he was acting nobly. We know that he was acting with honor. We know that he was responding to a call for help. He didn't know he was walking into an ambush, walking into a place of evil. We know this. We feel this. We cannot deny this. Officer Parrish mattered. We tell our children that they matter. We know they do. Our schools tell us over and over that the most important thing uh, that a child needs is just a good, healthy sense of self-esteem, not an over-exaggerated sense of self-esteem, which, you know, self-esteem, which we sometimes give children, but just good, a good sense of self-esteem. They need to know they matter. And so parents say to their kids, Ooh, I love you, sort of like that, until they're about 20, yeah. You know, oh, you're great, you're unique, you matter. But if we're going to be honest, you take God out of the picture, you're going to be hard-pressed to come up with a reason why. Why they matter just because you think so? Should somebody else think they matter? But we simply assert this against all reason, against all scientific evidence. We assert that we, that they matter. Friends, the Bible and God and Jesus would never have you believe anything so illogical and inconsistent. Jesus would never demand that kind of intellectual schizophrenia from you or that kind of faith. If your, uh, if your origin is insignificant, if your destiny is unyielding despair, well then have the guts to admit that your life and everyone else's life is insignificant and honestly it doesn't matter. But Jesus says, you know, I, I bring you a different message. And let me tell you, it's good news. It's news that we desperately, desperately need. And his news is that you and I matter. So does everyone. Jesus says, the Father and I love you, and we love you recklessly. We love you extravagantly. We love you prodigally. It's so interesting that we've chosen to call this this section of scripture, the story of the prodigal son. You know what prodigal is? Prodigal is, you know, spending uh, resources freely and, and recklessly, even wastefully, right? Extravagantly. Well, this story that we're going to be studying for the, the next few weeks is actually about the extravagant prodigal love of God for us. That's what we're going to be studying. You know, Jesus says, I have done everything for you. Jesus says, I have pursued you when you were lost. I have saved you from your sin and from your good works. I have done all of this at the price of my own life. Jesus is not soft on sin. Jesus took the penalty for sin. And he did it because you matter to him. You see, regardless of your performance, regardless of your religion, regardless of your moralism, Jesus says, you matter to me. 
And Jesus loves us even in our lostness. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. You see, the Pharisees and the elder brother struggled to believe that they were really lost. But they were so lost. Let me ask you this. Of the 100 sheep, which one was the stupidest? The one that was lost, right? Of the 100 sheep, which one was the most broken, the most needy? The, the one that had wandered off and gotten themselves lost, right? Of the 100 sheep, which one had the worst performance? Definitely the one who's gone off and got itself lost, right? But which one did the shepherd go after? The one lost sheep. And do you get it? I mean, that's you. And that's me. And that's the good news 